International tests show New Zealand schools are among the best in the world, but they also show the link between low income and underachievement is particularly strong in this country. So just why does coming from a poor background mean a child is more likely to have poor grades? This Radio New Zealand Insight programme investigates why New Zealand feels the link so keenly and asks how difficult it is to overcome. The teenagers at this Wellington Secondary School have spent the past decade or so in one of the best school systems in the world. So good in fact that by the age of 15, our students are ranked 4th in reading and science and 7th in maths among the 34 OECD member nations. But there is a blemish on that record. Low income has a bigger impact on children's achievement in this country than the average for developed nations. I'm John Gerritsen, and in this insight I explore why low income is associated with low educational achievement and why that link is so strong in New Zealand. To start this journey, let's go back to the beginning of the education system, early childhood. Kia ora, my name's Andrew Allen, I'm head teacher at Tairangi Kindergarten in Porirua East. Um, we serve a community of predominantly lower socio-economic families. We have a high percentage of Māori and Pacific Island children attending our kindergarten. Ages range from two years up to five-year-olds, so it's quite a diverse community that we serve. Andrew Allen says he can see that poverty has an impact on children even at this young age. We're making broad generalisations. However, you could see differences in terms of their social skills and interacting with their peers, being able to follow instructions and their receptive language, having had experiences of using pens and pencils and their language skills. So there's a broad range of things where they could have had less experiences and so they're less well developed in those kind of particular learning areas. But Andrew Allen says the families he works with value education and want the best for their children. That's why they bring them to kindergarten. Nevertheless, those differences are there. The next step for children is primary school. A professor of education at Victoria University, Rob Strathdee, says they enter a system which is supposed to offer equal opportunity, regardless of background. You know, the argument is that our education system is meritocratic and promotes equality of opportunity. And one of the key ways, or a number of key ways that it does this, but through th such things as a national curriculum and through such things as sort of a standardised method of teacher training, all of those kinds of factors are designed to neutralise the impact of background factors so that wherever you are in New Zealand, you can be sure that you're getting a quality fair income education that everyone else is getting and therefore the result of the education system is meritocratic. But of course the research shows that differences in achievement predate entry to school. Um, and so children who come from families where English is practised and uh, children are read to, they learn to read, you know, all of those kinds of things that prepare students to be successful, they, they do better. To find out how much better, I've come to Miramar Central School in Wellington. It's a mid-decile school, so it has a mix of children from different income backgrounds, and I want to see what differences there are between those children. The principal is John Taylor-Smith, and together we're looking at the writing of two seven-year-olds. This child on my right is much neater, so neatness is very important. The other child obviously hasn't written as much and also has an issue with the actual constructing the words to make sense out of it. You also look at the, the, the level of the, the vocabulary they're using, um, 
I'm just trying to find one in here. Um, if I read this one, yesterday my family came, but no why, because my mum wanted us to have a treat. So it's actually quite hard to make any sense out of that. And obviously you notice that child was actually off task, was looking around. So that usually means a kid was finding it difficult or was distracted by something. Whereas the other child who was head down, bum up, getting on with it. And if you read his one, on Saturday my sister went on a scavenger hunt. Straight away it's different. Meanwhile, meanwhile, there's a good word, I got to make my mum's Lego model. And it was a lighthouse. So you can see the level of the vocabulary. It makes more sense and it flows. It's more like you can actually talk about that before he starts. These are children from different income backgrounds? Definitely. I would say one child's had a lot more conversational experiences with their parents and with other people around, whereas the other child, I know he's one of quite a big family, and you wonder whether they've had the same opportunities to converse with adults as, as the other one. John Taylor-Smith won't estimate just how big the achievement gap is between children from low incomes and those from high incomes. He says children's abilities are so varied it's hard to put a figure on. But he believes the differences between children can actually grow the longer they're at school. Once kids are a little bit behind, um, it tends to exacerbate as the kids get older. So that if you've had a bad start, you've got catching up to do. And then, do you ever catch up? There may be something remarkable happening that you do catch up, but sometimes I think the die is cast by the time the kids get to school, um, which is a bit of a worry. University of Auckland education professor Stuart McNaughton has done a lot of research with low decile primary schools. He can put some numbers on the size of the impact of low income on achievement. You can run these indices in various ways. If you looked at reading comprehension, for example, when we first started working with our partner schools in South Auckland, there was up to a one and a half year difference in achievement levels between the children in the decile one schools and what you would expect nationally. So we're talking about a, a year to year and a half possibly greater differences. And these tend to exaggerate over time when you're using the crude index of the school's decile level. So what happens by the time those children get to secondary school? We're standing here at the moment on the front drive of the school and what you, what you see over on my left is our marae, whanatahi, which means a, a united family and that really encapsulates what the spirit of the school is. John Russell so is the principal of Nainai College, College a decile two school in the Hutt Valley. He says most of its new students start secondary school with a learning level several years behind what it should be. So if you think about our learners coming into the school, 60% are working at level 2-3 of the national curriculum. That means they are reading and writing typically at what you would expect from 9-10 year olds. So that's the tools of the trade that they bring with them and that you're working from from there. You see more of that delay in learning amongst the poorer children? Yes, 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 typically. Despite that poor starting point, Nainai College has NCEA achievement rates above the average for decile two schools, and even for decile three and four schools. It is about getting the learning appropriate for the target audience. It's getting them understanding what their personal ladder of success can look like. No matter where you are, what's the next step for you? And just getting building blocks right and getting kids having the confidence that they can do this stuff, you know? But the national picture is not so good. In 2011, about 60% of school leavers from low decile schools had at least NCA level 2. For high decile schools, the figure was more than 80%. Clearly, the impact of low income is felt throughout the education system. It's there in early childhood, primary school and secondary school. 
The University of Otago has picked this up in its longitudinal study of nearly 1,300 people born in Christchurch in the middle of 1977. Professor David Ferguson started the study and says it found a clear link between income and educational achievement, a link which doesn't just affect the poor. Even when we took into account all that we knew had been going on in the first 10 years, it still turned out that being reared in a rich family was more beneficial than being reared in a poor family. This does show that there is a, certainly a continuity of economic privilege. The important fact is that this is across the spectrum. The people in the lowest 20% of income did worse than the next group, who did worse than the next group and so forth. So it's not really poverty that's driving this, it's income inequality. The question is, why? What exactly is it about income levels that affects children's achievement? I found pretty universal agreement on this. Some of it is about attitude, some of it is about environment, but much of it is quite simply just about the money. Let's go back to kindergarten teacher Andrew Allen. I don't think that being poor in itself makes you a bad parent, but I think it makes it harder to be the best parent that you can be. And again, I'm talking about lack of income means lack of resources, equipment for your child to use at home. It's lack of experiences for your children in terms of taking them out, experiencing the wider world. But I think to go further than that, when we talk about poverty, that has associated problems for parents in terms of relationship stresses, in terms of maybe parents turning to things like gambling, um, there could be things like drug and alcohol abuse, can all be a result of parents being under stress and living under that kind of pressure situation. And so obviously if parents are under stress and experiencing these difficulties, that has a direct impact on the children. At Nainai College in the Hutt Valley just out of Wellington, John Russell says schools are fighting a combination of factors that hold children back. What we're dealing with is issues around poverty and income, issues around ethnicity and worldview, issues around social capital, in other words experience. So for instance, if I said to you, I've got a class of 26 year 9 students here and we're going on a trip to Te Papa, all right, into Wellington from Lower Hutt. How many of those students do you think would have been into Wellington before? From here? From here. I would have thought 80%, most of them, maybe, maybe all. Well, the class we took recently, 16 out of 26 had not been to Wellington. Goodness, that's quite so remarkable. That is remarkable. So you have to think that their zone of experience, because of economic factors, because of just lack of resource, because of all sorts of things, is very limited. So if you've never actually got on a train and gone into Wellington and visited Te Papa or wandered, you know, connected even with that size of the world, your capacity to write an essay on compare and contrast A with B, you've actually got nothing to compare or contrast. Auckland University's Stuart McNaughton says researchers in the United States have found that families in the top 20% income bracket spend $7,000 more per year on so-called enrichment experiences for their children than families in the bottom 20%. Stuart McNaughton says another area where poorer families fall behind is in time spent with their children. We're talking about talking with your child, reading books with your child, spending time interacting in ways that are related to the sorts of activities that take place at school, including homework activities, including the topic-based 
research studies and things that children might bring home from school. Now you might say, well why would that be related to poverty? I think there's a very good section or series of sections in the new report on child poverty from the expert advisory group which lays out some of the obvious things to do with overcrowding, to do with multiple calls on parental time, to do with access to significant others at times when you can focus on things like reading books together. Professor McNaughton says many people on low incomes have not spent much time at school and they do not have the experience and knowledge of learning that richer families have. The factors linking low income and low achievement for some of the children walking these corridors are not unique to New Zealand. But for some reason their influence is stronger here than in other countries. OECD figures show that by the age of 15, New Zealand has fewer lower achievers than most other countries. But the OECD also estimates that 17% of the difference in reading scores between our 15-year-olds is due to socio-economic background, higher than the OECD average of 14%. Why is that link so strong, when overall, our education system is one of the world's best? Auckland University's Stuart McNaughton has some suggestions. This effect of background is in the context of a system that overall is very good and among the best systems in the world. So if you like, this potentially has the effect of exaggerating the differences between those who do well and those who don't do so well and might exaggerate the background factors that contribute to those differences. It's like an amplifier. Because the system is so good, it may be amplifying the differences. Stuart McNaughton says another possible cause is New Zealand has rested on the laurels of its high international achievement in education, instead of pushing harder to address disadvantage. And this is a, what is this, a year, year 11 uh-huh. English, English class. At Nainai College, John Russell puts the blame on widening income disparities and on the fact that New Zealand has a more diverse ethnic composition than other high-ranking OECD countries like Finland. When you have wide disparity within a society... That is hugely demotivating to those at the bottom. If you have got a lower general income but more cohesion and equality, then you're not going to get anything like the differences. The other factor is the countries that do best are monocultural societies. There is a sense of unity, there is one target, one person, one, you know, one size fits all, and the system's designed that way. We're a much more diverse society, and we've got to embrace diversity and work out what that actually means for education. Nearly three quarters of children in New Zealand's low decile schools are Māori or Pacifica. The Secretary for Education, Leslie Longston, says that's a complicating factor. It's actually really difficult to disentangle the impact of socioeconomic background from other issues. And we in the Ministry have made clear that our priority groups, who are the groups for whom the system is not working well enough, are children from low socioeconomic backgrounds, but also Māori and Pacifica and children with special education needs. And actually, these things are not completely independent because if you don't educate Māori and Pacifica to the fullest of their abilities, then they're more likely to end up in low socioeconomic groups. So it's kind of a little bit circular here. And so our strategies are really focused on how can we make the system work as well for um, Māori and Pacifica as for um, Pākehā children. Liz McKinley is the director of Starpath, a University of Auckland program that works with low-decile secondary schools to raise student achievement. She agrees ethnicity plays a role, 
but she says poverty is a great leveller. I'm talking about real poverty here. I'm not talking about working class. And the difference in that, I think, is where there's, there really is no money, that you worry constantly. You know, you're sick about if anything does happen, there is no spare cash. In fact, sometimes you don't have enough cash to actually even feed and clothe your kids. And it shows in the results that, for want of a better phrase, poor white kids score as badly as, as poor brown kids, actually, in those circumstances. So there is a, a level of income or a lack of income where the achievement is particularly bad, and then it will actually rise from there, and then you start to see differences in achievement, I think, due to ethnic makeup. Liz McKinley says a factor that appears to work against many children from low-income families is that they live with other families with similarly low resources in a way that was not the case in the past. My father was a freezing worker, and the doctor's children lived down the road as well, you know, and they came to the same schools as us. I went through the schools with the doctor's children, the policeman's children. It's a very mixed sort of group, and so kids such as me, who came from fairly working-class sort of background. Other people used to take me places if we didn't have a car. There were those sorts of things that happened and, and then can happen in small communities. But I guess um, when you get into today's circumstances, there seems to be a greater concentration of poverty in an area, so poor kids live with other poor kids. That sort of yeah enhances the effects that we see in these schools that are in, in the middle of these communities. But to what extent can the education system overcome or mitigate the impact of low income on children's achievement? Stuart McNaughton says the right approaches can help children catch up much of the difference. You can make differences. You do it by working through the, the quality of instruction, so you make sure you target those needs that the children have. You have to have a good evidence base. You have to have good leadership that keeps that school coherent and, and focused on the goals of raising it, the achievement levels in the ways that make a difference. And in our research, we can show over and over again, if you get the right combinations of these factors within the school, you can raise the achievement levels by six months or more over the course of a three-year period per year I'm talking about so that you can begin to make a difference, accelerate the change so that um, levels become more like nationally expected levels. Stuart McNaughton says that takes a lot of very hard work. But what if you simply gave families more money? He acknowledges that can work too. It appears from the various descriptive studies and, if you like, natural experiments where groups of people have become richer because of incomes changing or poorer, the reverse of that, that you can get major changes in achievement over the course of just a few years that are equivalent to the sorts of changes that you would get by pouring the resources and expertise into schools that we've just been talking about. The Ministry of Education does not give poor families more money, but for a long time now it's given extra funding to schools in poor communities. 11 plus 4, 15, 15 oh. plus 5, 20. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The funding starts at a range of $700 to $870 per student at Decile 1 schools, dropping to $400 to $600 at Decile 2 schools, and down to nothing at Decile 10 schools. But people like Nainai College's John Russell say it's not enough, especially when he compares it to his experience as a principal of a high decile school. Well, it's tokenistic in a way. For instance, as principal of Kapiti College Decile 8, we simply grew our international student program to 70 students, gave us $500,000 a year flexible income that we could do all sorts of things with. So you talk about there, half a million of discretionary income. You talk about this school and the total that you get for the decile component of income is about 200000 
So as we, uh, we walk through the school, John Russell says his school has to spend a lot of the money maintaining a property that's bigger than the school currently needs. The school was built in 1953. What's left goes on the real needs of the children. Ideally, you're putting that into either increased staffing or increased personal support or, or so on. So in a school like this, our teacher aid level, in fact, so to support those who need support, the number of teacher aids we employ is significantly less for the number of teacher aids I was able to employ at Kapiti. There's no comparison of need at all. So if I'm talking about the need level of 60% of my school, that would be the need level of the bottom 5% at a decile 8-9 environment. So there's huge disparities of need. Whatever you set out to do takes a whole lot more manpower and a whole lot more time than in a high decile environment. The Ministry of Education's Leslie Longston agrees decile funding is not solving the problem and the Ministry is trying a range of approaches. There isn't just a silver bullet that we can say, let's do this programme and we'll solve this issue. This is really deep and complicated and there are lots of interrelated factors. So some of the programmes we run are very much about the teaching practice. Some of them are about how we really support schools to engage families and whānau. Some of them are about how we really turn the school experience on its head and put the learner at the centre and say, how can we make education, teaching and learning here really relevant to the cultural language and context of, of the young person, whether that be a Pākehā child or a Māori child or a Pacifica child. Have you all got pins? There needs to be a different approach taken to teaching children from poorer families, according to the University of Auckland's Liz McKinley. All we can do is to keep trying to make sure that we have better quality teachers, that we have teachers who are able to respond to, if you like, a pedagogy of poverty. Teachers come across a good idea, they might go somewhere at a conference or whatever, pick up a really good idea that seems to have worked in one school and they take the stuff and they want to put it in their school and it doesn't always necessarily work. I think we need to think more carefully about the pedagogy we use with the kids in the lower decile schools or the, the schools who serve uh, those lower socioeconomic communities. Stuart McNaughton says the interventions, whatever they might be, need to be at every level of the education system. That's possibly the most important point to make. One-off interventions don't work. Even interventions that, if you like, are targeted on one part of the system may not be sufficient to cause an overall change in the system. It's not enough to say we need high-quality early childhood education because it matters what happens at primary. But why are some schools doing better than others with students from low-income families? Stuart McNaughton says the system of self-managing schools might be part of the problem. Our system is greatly advantaged by having the local control of the boards of trustees. It means that the school can make decisions, adjust their teaching and learning appropriately. But I do think that in some areas we may not have the balance right between the national policy and regulations, if you like, indeed resourcing of schools, and that local democracy. I think there is a point at which uh, the balance between the local democracy, the local control, and the overall system should tilt further towards the overall system making judgments about what is appropriate across schools. But school principals are not convinced central government has the answers. 
John Russell of Nainai College says the government is approaching the problem the wrong way. You've got a government thinking that the issue is teacher incompetence, so we'll do more about appraisal and systems, you know, sort of top-down systems, which actually quell the spirit of what has to drive it. These things have got to come from within. John Russell says the most successful initiatives engage families and communities rather than threatening teachers. And the principal of Miramar Central School, John Taylor-Smith, says schools need a consistent approach rather than policy swings every time a new government is elected. We have a system where the government changes every three years, always a new focus. We're always moving goalposts. And I think someone's got to sit down and say, OK, let's just look at the whole thing from the point of view of an educational background. How can we make a difference? One of the more recent policy swings is the national standards in reading, writing and maths. Benchmarks many principals say will not help them address underachievement because they don't tell schools anything they did not already know. However, the Ministry of Education's Leslie Longston says the standards will provide an overview of how all schools are going, and Auckland University's Stuart McNaughton says consistent national benchmarks are essential. But Professor McNaughton says school-based efforts alone are not enough. It is only possible to overcome the sorts of differences we're talking about if we also have a policy environment that reduces the inequalities between families and communities. Together, schools and communities that are more resourced and less differentiated would be able to overcome. The achievements of these children will depend heavily on all sorts of challenges they face outside the classroom. However, many experts agree schools can help stop poverty undermining their learning. But there's also agreement schools can't do that on their own, and policy makers need to address health and social issues too to ensure a level playing field. I'm John Gerritsen, and that's Insight for this week. If you would like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Sally Round, with technical production by Colette Jansen.